Hey, everybody. Okay, this is a bonus episode. This is extra. If 15 minutes of Parsha a week is not enough for you, if you're jonesing for more Parsha, then you, you may know that I teach a weekly Parsha class here at ICAR in Los Angeles every Thursday at noon uh, Pacific time. You're welcome. Um, we've got folks joining us virtually from places as far away as Japan on, on Zoom. And uh, we've been archiving video edits of the classes on YouTube, but we thought we might try cutting down the one-hour class to about 40 minutes for you, for the listeners of the Best Book Ever podcasts that might not be able to fit a midday class on a Thursday into your schedule. So I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy teaching them. Um, if you're interested to attend the class from wherever you are in the world in person, then stick around at the end of the podcast. I'll tell you how to register. Um, just like the podcast, it's absolutely free, and we'd love to have you. finishing touches here as usual down to the wire hi everybody uh nice to see you all um okay so today uh i have a rather ambitious project um which is that i want to try and cover uh in some broad way the topic of um i'm going to use this word early on and then hopefully we're going to discard it uh, but the topic of impurity, impurity um, in Hebrew, and this is the word that we're going to really try and stick to, the word is tumah. And, uh, and we don't know what exactly what it means. And our usual translation is impurity, and that is correct sometimes. And as usual, if you've come to our classes, um, it is also the case that we really, if a word occurs like this in some consistent way in our in our tradition, especially the way that language works in our tradition, it, we have to understand it in all of its connotations on its own and not just give it a, an English translation, especially a concept, conceptual word like this. Like, what is impurity anyway? So what is tuma? Well, one thing that we know about tuma is that it stands in opposition to tahara. There seem to be two states, so we could call them pure and impure for now, for now. But Tuman Tahara are the two states. And um, there, I, I, why am I, why am I, why, why this, why today? Because we are beginning a, a, a couple of part of Parshot, uh, Tazria and Mitsora. this week. Usually, usually are actually read together, but because it's a leap year um, uh, in, in the Jewish calendar, there's more uh, separation between the Parsha. So we have these two Parshas that both deal with or begin to deal with um, the subject of uh, purity and impurity, or the subject uh, primarily, I would say, of Tumah. What is Tumah? And, and, and why is that important? Well, be, one way of thinking about it is that uh, it, you can't have contact with 
the holy altar when you're in a state of tuma. And so we think of this as the priestly book, priestly laws. We've been getting so far all of the laws of the sacrifices. That's like sort of the number one topic in the book of Leviticus. The, the first and seemingly most major topic in the book of Leviticus is the sacrificial system and on the right, the rites and rituals that the priests um, um, conduct us through in order to bring sacrifices for all kinds of reasons. But it turns out that you can't bring sacrifices if you're in a state of impurity. And that seems to matter mostly for the priests themselves who have to remain in a state of purity. But actually, pretty soon, and certainly in these, in these readings that we're looking at today, it turns out that this state of impurity matters a lot for everybody, that anyone can become tamay, and that that's something that we have to think about, and that's something we will be thinking about, and it's a concept which will become bigger than just the sacrifices, and bigger than just the altar, so that it becomes like a subtopic in the big larger overarching topic of Leviticus, which is Kedusha, holiness. And it does seem that the Tuma Tahara binary has something to do with the Kodesh Chol binary, the, the holy and mundane binary. And I, I by the way, I, I saw it like in the translation holy and profane, and I think Kodesh and Chol is holy and mundane. So that that's important to say now because it is also the case that Tamei might not be impure in the same way, but some state of, of not pure. Right? So we'll think about that a little bit, a little bit together. But what I want to do um, with you all, and this is the ambitious project, is we're actually not going to read much from this week's Parsha. I just want to name that this week's Parsha and next week's Parsha are filled with the laws of Tuma and Tahara. And it's, we have to deal with them every year. Poor bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah student who gets one of these parshas. We have to like scratch our heads and figure out what they're going to talk about because it's you know, it's full of. Um, well, let's 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 just take one sample and then we'll and then we'll name our project for today and then we'll we'll make a blessing. But it's full of lines like the following. Let's see here, lines like. Uh, God spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a person has on the skin of the body a swelling, a rash, or discoloration, and it develops into a scaly affection on the skin of the body, it shall be reported to Aaron or to the priest or one of his sons, the priests. And the priest shall examine the affection of the skin of the body. Affection of the skin of the body, that's an interesting term. We'll deal with that more next week, Sarat what this condition is, but for our purposes today, um, and look at how gross and detailed this all is. I mean, like poor, like I said, poor B'nai Mitzvah here, but uh, the hair, if the hair in the affected patch is turned white and the affection appears to be deep, deeper than the skin of the body, it is a leprous affection. And again, Sarat, when the priest sees it, and this is the only time I'm gonna leave this word tr like translated. When the priest sees it, and this is the language that they're choosing, and I think grammatically it's precise, he shall pronounce the person impure. Or I should say it's a little imprecise because the word is here. This is the word we're gonna be looking at today. Vitimeoto, which really means literally, he will, he will time the person. He will declare, it is, he will declare the person impure. That's true in context. 
but literally he shall time the person. Okay, and I'm going to translate it now. And for the rest of our time, we're going to try and just stick to what is it to what is tuma? What is it to be time? Um, but it but you see how it is used in context here. He declares the person tame, tame. And these this is these declarations are part of what the priests would do. Now, what is going on? There's bodily scaly eruptions. Then there will be, you could get a piece of cloth which could be discolored in, so was it mold? Who we don't know. Again, Sarat, the house, this week's uh, podcast. Vera, <laughs> this is a good time to promote the podcast. Best book ever, please go listen to the podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, if you could uh, give a link to this week's podcast. But this week's podcast, we talk about the house, the wall of the house, which can become infected. And then it's these things are all declared impure. Okay, so what does all that mean? Well, um, you know, all there's so much written on this, we can't possibly do justice to it in you know one hour. Not, not, no, 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 no possibility of that. But and and people, as I said in in a previous class, have devoted their entire lives to the study of Leviticus. Take a look at Jacob Milgram and his almost in in like insanely like voluminous study of Leviticus for one, just for one. But um, um, what I would like to do is just use the methods that we tend to use in this class, the methods that I am um, particularly um, fond of and believe in, I guess I should say more, um, for studying Chumash, for studying the Torah. And because this is where the term um, emerges, is in the Torah. So what we're gonna do today um, and let me give you a source sheet for it. What we're going to do today is um, we're going to try to take a look just at the term and try to see how it appears in the Torah and look just at the context of the Torah and try to understand is that what is this thing? What is this institution? Why might it apply to things like skin disease or bodily fluids? Or as we'll soon see, um, dead, dead things of all kinds. Um, that might be, in fact, the main form of tuma that uh, that the Torah is is, or at least that Leviticus is fixated on. Okay. Um, is, do I have a question already? No. Okay. Good. Um, in that case, let's say a blessing now, and we'll go into our learning. Blessing over the study of Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Okay, so here we go. We, um, I'm going to give you now a source sheet, and we're going to take a look. I, I'm going to, what I want to do is to take a look at the first source, discuss it a little bit, and then give you a little bit of a tour before we come to some of the, the earlier sources. But let's just start with Leviticus. Because Tuma and uh, Tahara don't really come up in a major way until Leviticus, and then suddenly they're everywhere. So let's just start with Leviticus. And um, it doesn't appear right away. We're going through these sacrifices, and the, the place that the in these two parshas, as in these two readings, they're really prominent. All of a sudden, this is the main topic of conversation. But before then, it has come up. And the first place that Tuma comes up, as a matter of fact, is in the middle of the guilt offering. That's guilt offering. Um, that's a strange thing in itself. And this is the piece that I want to 
process with you a little bit because it's it seems to say some things about what Tuma, what category Tuma might be in that that I think are worth um, are worth thinking about. Um, but what is the guilt offering? The guilt offering, as you'll soon see, is it's like a subdivision of the sin offering. It's a form of sin offering for particular sins which were committed um, without full consciousness. I don't mean unintentionally because, you know, even the sin offerings, some unintentional sins could be, could you could make it, but this is a particular kind of, of unintention where you're not, you weren't fully aware. It's not quite a sin. It's like an accidental sin. So let me give you the examples here. Oh, I'm gonna go to this one. Okay, so this is the first place that, that the word tamay appears in its various forms in Leviticus. If a person incurs guilt, now this is a, there's a list of the sacrifices, and this is the, I don't know, fourth or fifth um, uh, named sacrifice. There was the ola, like the, the elevation offering, they sometimes call it, which is the main offering. There was the, um, the shlamim, the, the, the offering of well-being. There was the, um, the sin offering. Um, and, I'm, uh, and, and, and eventually we get to the, the guilt offering. Okay, so a person incurs guilt. And now this is complicated, but this gives you a feeling for what kind of uh, sin the guilt offering is accounting for. When one has heard a public imprecation, meaning you heard that some crime happened, but although able to testify as having seen or learned of the matter, you could have gone and reported it, you did not give the information. And that's technically a, a crime, even though you haven't committed a crime, you have not, you saw it and then, and I think the implication here is you forgot or you, I don't think the implication is that you concealed it it slipped your mind or you just didn't get to it or you were afraid or something like that. But it's like you had information that would have been helpful. You're not really, you haven't really committed any wrongdoing, but you're guilty of that, okay? So I want you just thinking about all of that because soon I wanna ask, okay, what does that have to do with the next thing which suddenly comes up out of nowhere or when a person touches any tame thing? or when a person touches any tamay thing, be it the carcass of a tamea beast, that's the feminine form, because uh, behema is a, is a word in the, in the feminine, or the carcass of a tamea cattle, or the carcass of, of a tamay uh, creeping thing, like a bug, a, a vermin, sherets. And the fact has escaped notice. And then being tamay, that person realizes guilt. Okay, so you see in the same, like now we're getting a sense of what might cause impurity, these contact with dead things, but also we have a sense that like the other guilt offerings, there's some state, you could become impure by accident and you could just become aware of it later and then, oh, I want to, I want to cleanse myself. So it's, so it's not like you sinned, I mean, you just bumped up against something. And then there's another mention of that being true also and all the more so when one touches human tuma. So at someone who is tuma, is tame or a dead body. Um, but this, I think uh, see, the assumption is refers to, you know, a secondary tuma. Like you've touched something that was tame. And now if I touch you, it I become tame. And this is like now you begin to get a sense of, and this is like a huge area of 
ancient Jewish law, not very rarely studied these days because it's not so relevant, but they used to try to keep track of primary contact tuma, secondary contact tuma, but you could, you see, you could do it all accidentally. And I'll give you the last example. And then I'd just like to hear if there are any thoughts so far on, wait, what is tuma? What so far are we understanding about tuma? But the last example here is that when a person utters an oath to bad or good purpose, whatever a human being may utter in an oath, and though having known about it, the fact escaped notice, but later that person realizes guilt in any of these matters, upon realizing guilt in any of these matters, one shall confess of having sinned in that way, and one shall bring as a penalty to Hashem for the sin which one is guilty of female from, so there's a, there's a particular um, offering, but it is counted as a sin offering, and the priest will keeper, will make expiation for the sin. So what do we see so far? What is tuma? Because all of a sudden it comes up as, a, it's like the Torah is going to explain it later, but just mentions, oh, by the way, if you, if you become accidentally tame, that also requires an offering. You'll need to purify for that. Okay, um, Ari Ratner. Um, I think it's interesting because probably because we're Americans or we're moderns or whatever it is, we immediately, I think instinctually go to the individual body and the individual, whether I am pure or not. And you talked about the moral purity of it, um, which I think we also go to, but we also just think in individual terms. And if you look at what's said there, it says, speak to the Israelite people. Um, and, he's, and then there's a bunch of you, you shall not do this, you shall not, that you is not you, Ari Ratner. Um, that you is you, people of Israel. Now I'm part of that, but as a collective you. And the, the purity, while it obviously pertains to individuals, to me seems uh, about the purity of the body politic. How do you handle um, purity amongst a group of people, amongst this people itself? And the way that it happens, it's contagious. The way to stop the contagion, the role of the priests in stopping the contagion. It's a conception of purity that's very much outside of the American kind of conception of purity to be like a total conception of purity. Um, that individuals play a role in, but like a lot of it is, yeah, it doesn't matter what you think or what you feel or if you're good or if you're bad, you touch someone and that, you know, therefore like we've got a system to, to deal with this collective impurity. You know, I think you're, you're absolutely right, Ari, on one level that, and you're, we're gonna see, let's keep Ari's comments in mind because we're gonna see implications um, of, of the of tuma that do seem to do have to do with group identity and group preservation so i think there is that direction is worth pursuing although let's hold it for a second but i don't i don't think it's it's i don't think it's wrong also to be reflecting on the individual experience because there is like there is a an there is a subject here there is one person who becomes impure and yes then it has implications for all of us but you know i mean it's a little bit like thinking about about covid right like we have to think about the klal the whole but what is it like for a person to go through what treatment will they receive like the torah thinks about that as well and and i think that the torah um i think i'm gonna speak about this on shabbat actually um but the <laughs> i'm doing a lot of thinking on tazria this week but um but I think that the Torah addresses this slightly, even in our Parsha, when, when it says that this person who is declared um, 
Tamei is like, the, the priest says, Tamei, Tamei, declares them in public. And then they go outside of the camp and they are Badad Yoshev. They sit alone. And the Torah takes note of that experience. And I just, I want to keep that experience in mind as well, because um, there's often a person at the center of all this. And yes, they have obligations to the community, just like I do if, God forbid, I get COVID. But but it's also having an experience here. And it's, yeah, let's 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 hold that tension. I'm glad that you named it. Let me take one more comment and then I wanna and then I wanna push not forward but backward a bit um, from Allison Goldman. Thank you. Um, this is more of like an observation. I it was interesting to me that you included the um, what's it called a pasuk pasuk from yeah. Leviticus ten because uh, that's what I was thinking of like, because I just remembered it from last week. And I was just recalling that this comes almost, it's like the first thing that we're told after Nadav and Avihu bring the strange fire and die in front of all of Israel. Um, and I just, it made me recall, like, <laughs> before COVID, I remember asking you about these terms and like what to make of them. And I remember you telling me that the rabbis at the time were really concerned about death. Um, so it just made me think there's like something about death and holiness and like maybe there's something to do with what happened with Nadav and Avihu that's connected here. Good, thank you for that. Thanks for mentioning that that theory. It is a theory, but it is one, I think it's one of the most convincing theories and I. I guess I'm somewhat convinced by it, so I mentioned it. But there's a there's a way there are many attempts um, throughout Jewish history, but still today to try to frame what are these two terms? What does it mean to be tamei and tahor? How are how do they describe two entire separate realities? One of them, one of the attempts, um, which I sort of alluded to before, is just to think of it as technical. It's not value laden at all. It's about a state that one must be in in order to approach the the mikdash, what is holy. I find that like it's there's something important about that because we it's so easy to get caught up in the value laden nature of a word like impurity. We need to sort of back away from that. But the idea that there's nothing to it being pure except having or being uh, tahor except having followed the rituals. I don't know. It just seems especially the way the tradition begins to borrow it. As a, as a value-laden term. There seems to be something good about being in a state of, of, of tahara and, you know, something bad about eating things that are, that are tameh. So like why, is it just arbitrary? So anyway, one of the other theories and the one that, that Alice and I were talking about is that this is about the Torah's great obsession is life and death as a binary. And, or at least this, the, two, the, the, the priestly obsession of, with life and death has it so that all of the things which create impurity are, um, have something to do with loss of life, whether it is death itself, but that's the highest form of purity um, of, 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 of Tuma, um, or uh, um, uh, uh, creatures that can bring disease or diseases of the body, or molds and things that can be inhaled, or even the things like um, menstruation be representing a, like a cycle of not creating life, right? A sort of a, 
a, a lost egg or something like that, you know, like a, um, and so too with like, with other genital, you know, what seems like a fixation, but because this is the procreative life, you know, engine. So that's a theory. Again, I'm, I'm not endorsing that theory, but it is useful to just as a, a, a strong exercise in thinking through what is, what is this? What is this binary that the Torah is offering to us? Okay, I wanna do one last important piece of work. And, um, and, and this is very much in, I would say the style of this class. It is important, I, I always suggest to really the way that the Torah works in, in playing with language and making linguistic connections seems to me um, like quite clear that the, these shared roots across different texts and stories are meant to be um, noticed and linked at, in, in, in some sort of connotative association. But um, because of that, I also believe a sort of a principle of mine that the first mentions of, of a word in the Torah are significant because that's without context, a kind of presentation of this term. So, and here's where things, uh, again, tr like, uh, again, the things are, are get, get um, uh, um, very difficult. Um, uh, we're gonna look at difficult material. Um, not initially, because initially I wanna just point out that the word tahara, it's not used often before Leviticus, but it is used and the first place it's used is actually in some ways the most interesting because it's again about uh, what seems like kosher and non-kosher animals, but it's used differently uh, it, the, than, than it is in our, in our text. Remember in our text, we named all of the tamay animals, all of the, you know, tamay animals, impure, not kosher, treif, whatever, whatever. Okay, this text, interestingly, um, uses very different, uses, different language, distinctly different language. Take a look. Um, where do you think I'm going? Anyone, anyone, anyone? <laughs> to where have animals been seen before? The story of Noah, story of Noah. And Noah always knows the story of Noah, right? I, I heard Noah's voice in there. Um, God Make said to Noah, go, go into the ark with all your household for you alone have I found righteous before me in this generation. Of every tehorah animal, you shall take seven pairs, males and their mates. And of every animal that is not Tehorah. Now that's really interesting. And then the, the, that gets repeated here of the Tehorah animals and of the not Tehorah animals. This is the way it, it is in the Hebrew. So that's the commentators have fun with that. Why didn't the Torah say Tehorah and Tmeah? We have that though. It doesn't seem like that term is there yet. It's not available to them yet or something. It hasn't been formed as a concept yet, the idea that something is not just not tahorah, but tmeah. And yet we do here again, these animals, I'm not even sure, is Noah only eating the Torah ones? I don't even know what this distinction means yet, but there are some animals that are tahorah. Okay, so that's one stop. Um, there are other places where we speak of, of, of of Tahara in, in um, Genesis and Exodus. Uh, Jacob, when he's moving his family, at one point tells everybody Titaru to, to become Tahor. And the other really interesting place is that when Moses and, and the elders are, and Joshua and Aaron are going up the mountain to like encounter God, they, they see something, some kind of glow underneath the clouds. 
Kemaseliv um, Natasapir, that is like the like the work of sapphire bricks. And then it says um, like the very purity of the sky, it's often translated. Oh, so now that's, wow, that's quite a, okay. So that's, that's Tahara for you. But I actually want today to focus more on Tuma because that's the thing that we seem to be dealing with in Leviticus. That's the thing that is, new as you can see here it doesn't even in the earliest formulations it doesn't exist it's tahara and not tahara so something can be pure maybe it's even a heavenly thing to be pure but there is no being tame yet the place where that first comes up um is in also in the book of genesis it is the only mention of tuma before the book of Leviticus. And so as a methodological and literary um, necessity, we have to go and look for the connection here. But it is a terrible story and a, a terrible connection to have to reckon with because it is the story of the rape of Dina. So I wanna take a look at its use in context there. And I want to say from the outset, I do not have like a solution to this. I just think it's important for us as students of the Torah to note that there's some connection. There's some way that that text is speaking to the very concepts that it's the only mention beforehand. So let's take a look uh, at that, at the mention in context. And it's it's a confusing one. And, um, and I'll just give another caveat, which is that this is a story, it is a disturbing story. And one of the, it's about rape, but also because um, I'll just name what is now, I think, increasingly obvious to us, which is that the men in the story are the only ones who seem to have any voice or agency. Rabbi Browse has spoken um, about this particular reading often, and, and it is worth um, looking at her sermons on that topic. Um, so so that's, um, that's deeply unsettling. And, and, and yet it's also, I think, part of the story that, the solution to whatever happens here, the, the problem with what happens here is male violence. And the solution to what happens here is male violence. So there's Tuma somewhere in there, but like, I'm not presenting this as a, a good way to deal with Tuma. And I don't know that the Torah is either, but, let, but those are all caveats at the outset. Okay, so let's take a look. So now Dina, the daughter to whom Leah had born to Jacob went out to visit the daughters of the land. Lirot bivnot ha'aretz. Shechem, son of Hamor, the Chivite. Um, by the way, it doesn't seem to be a coincidence that Hamor's name is the word for donkey, right? It seems to be some kind of biblical insult or symbolic degradation. Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Chivite chief of the country, saw her and took her and lay with her and afflicted her. Now there is some debate over whether the Torah means to say raped her per se, but I actually think, I don't, I don't think, I mean the language, though that's only because there is different language for rape, but that language here of the Yishkavota v'yaneha, and he afflicted her. If he, I mean, you could break it up like later afflicted her and some have argued, even feminist readers of the text have argued, no, they had a kind of a connection and it's everybody else's problem that they did, but I, I do think that language here implies that he afflicted her in the act of laying with her, and therefore it is a rape. Like that seems to me 
Pshat, but we can disagree on that. But that's the context of this word. Being strongly drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob, and in love with the maiden. Okay, so he loved her afterwards. That doesn't change that it was a rape. He spoke to the maiden tenderly. So Shem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as a wife. Kachli, go get her, right? Go get her. Um, Jacob heard that he had time. This doesn't really work in the grammar, but Yaakov Shemaki time etina. He heard that he had, he had, now what are the translations here? Defiled, disgraced, uh, impurified, but, right? uh, but he was timeota. And now this is a, I don't know, this is, what, how are we to read this anyway? Is this Jacob's understanding of what it meant? Or is that a, a euphemism for, the, for rape? Or is it just um, one way of thinking about Tuma itself? What, it, what does it mean to become Tame here? So that's our question. I wanna open it up a little bit and think about, you know what, it's such a, explosive and dangerous text. Let me let me give you the fullness of the story before I open it up and then we'll we'll use I don't I don't want to miss anything here. We use the rest. I just want to note that the word then comes up two more times in the story. Let's finish the story and see the way that it ends. I alluded to the male violence. Um okay, this remember Ari's comments about kind of group identity. That seems to be important here because Hamor said, the father-in-law says, give um um us Dina in marriage and it literally intermarry with us. Marry with us, give your daughters to us and take your daughters, uh, take our daughters for yourselves. Men negotiating women here. Um, and then you'll dwell among us and we'll all be one people. And um, Jacob's sons did not accept that. And they, it says, speaking with guile, they lied because he had Timei, there's this phrase again, their sister Dina. So what do they say instead? Only on this condition will we agree with you that you become like us in that every male among you is circumcised. Circumcised, because they're not circumcised. And then we'll do this thing. But it was a lie, and they lied because they had Timei Dina. And then, this is, a, this is not remembered by the Torah as a positive episode. Jacob curses this in various ways afterwards. But on the third day after the circumcision, when they were in pain, Shimon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, brothers of Dina, each took his sword, came upon the city unmolested. I don't know. It came upon the uh, ear, Betach, which was the ear which was tranquil, and slew all the males. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword, and Dina uh, took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. And the other sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the town, for they had Timu, their sister. Okay. So what um, do we do with this connection? What else does it do for our understanding of Tuma? Well, let me name some of the things that, it, that, that we've already surfaced, like the, um, the affliction on a body and, and the, actually the penetration of something into a body, right? Something foreign, perhaps, something you're not supposed to, right? There, there's like a cultural reading here and a kind of like identity, but also just like in the parallel with the things we don't eat, the people we don't marry, right? And there is also clearly a moral, we were wondering about the moral element, which we might take away from many usages of, of Tumah here, but here 
this person oppressed Dina, afflicted Dina, caused her suffering. And that is what Jacob understands to be part of how he was Timeota. So this is a connection that we have to have in mind. So let's start to, to move through it a, a, a little bit and try to think what the connections might be. We're not gonna resolve this, but we'll be a little wiser around the implications for Tuma. So can I turn to Julia? Well, so stop me if this is overcomplicating it, but because I wanted to bring in another word, Tom, spelled with um, a tough, um, and it's a word that's used to describe Jacob early in his life. And I think that the similarity to Tuma, I think it just speaks to how delicate the balance is uh, of being Tom often being translated as unblemished. Mm -hmm. um, though it, it, it could also be simple or plain or something, but there, but that a one letter difference with a very similar sound is goes from being unblemished to mm -hmm. impure, defiled, whatever it is you want to translate it as. And that um, so much of Jacob's life, he goes through it not being Tom, and he does so much to, you know, become a, a, a trickster. And um, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to see the way that this is now happening through the, the line of his descendants. Okay, that's really interesting. Now, as a linguistic matter, the words are not connected. But although one has to say that in, an, in a tradition where things are, are, are sometimes oral, and in a situation where they're talking about the orality of declaring tame, tame, it does seem like worth noting that the sacrifices themselves, not just Jacob, but the sacrifices themselves are, are sometimes referred to as tamim. It has to be complete. And the priests are, has to be tamim without blemish. So there is like a realm there of thinking around what it means for a thing to be blemished, right? To use Leah's um, language earlier. What does it mean for it to be um, blemished, destroyed, like somehow stained, right? Somehow not whole anymore, not unvarnished anymore. Um, okay, Payam and then Jen. I see it as Tuma as a concept of being inside a circle, outside of a circle, included and excluded. There's a, there's a permanence in it. And Tamein sort of, especially in the Dina stories, transitioning from one circle to the other circle. So being taken away from something. So they're sort of, they're not polar opposites of each concept. Yeah, yeah, that's, okay, good. That's, um, link that back to Ari's comments earlier about um, group identity and, and sort of solidarity. There's definitely, in this story, one of the themes seems to be the outsider, right? Um, that it was, like, even though it's strange because the reaction is just violence. But is they have a fake reaction, which suggests no, you have to go through this process and become circumcised, and um, that that's I I I must admit I thought of this connection in part because the opening scene in this week's um, parsha is Tazria is a scene which includes a circumcision. So I'll just show that to you finally, and I can't help but wonder. So, uh, this is the way Parsha Tazria opens. Uh, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people thus, when a woman at childbirth bears a male, she shall tama seven days. She'll be in some state of tama after birth. 
and she shall tama at the time, like she shall, sorry, it's just to say, like she shall tama at the time of menstruation. So menstruation um, could cause a state of tuma, and so can birth. Both of those sort of, and that's, that's surprising. And then on the eighth day of the flesh of it, his foreskin shall be circumcised. Suddenly a mention of that, right? And then she goes, she, she stays in a state for 33 days of tahara. Okay, so it's just like, what's going on there? Like, why are in the, why in the story of, of Dina, they've, they keep raising, oh, she's been like tima, tima, tima. They, they've, they've, they've made her, they brought some tuma to Dina. And then they're talking about all of these like cultural, national group, tribal dynamics is really the word. As if that would solve the problem, but it's not, it's not actually the solution they're interested in, right? So yeah, okay, uh, Jen. Um, I mean, I think it's sort of a traditional analysis of these things that what's impure is the crossing of categories, like life and death. And even in the, the this story, like Israelite and non-Israelite, um, especially since we're not 100% sure whether this is a rape that's being described, but like putting a putting that particular story aside, Leviticus seems to me like an answer to that in the sense that there's a container being made for the things that cross, that we don't have to respond to these things that cross over with like mass violence and try to wipe out that which can make us impure. We're gonna create a container because we are gonna be touched by death in life. We are gonna be touched by the outsider that is going to sneak up on us uh, unbeknownst to us. So we have to create a container for both understanding and, and incorporating into our spiritual life these places where death and life cross. So uh, brilliantly, per perfectly said. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't put it, put it better. And I want to end on that note. That, that's, that I think is the, is the last thought that I, I want us to be meditating on. We certainly cannot cover the entirety of the concept of Tuma, it conti we'll, we'll continue to track it over these next two weeks. It'll continue through, through the book of Leviticus and then be taken up um, by the prophets and used in different ways. We also certainly did not address all of the implications of what it means to say that, that he was Tima et Dina. What, 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 what is it that they're worried about exactly? We've surfaced some of the possibilities, but I do think that the connection here and by the way, I must say the connection, it's not just, oh, there's a circumcision here, but a lot of the words are the same here, that, um, that when a woman is yalda, that word is used a couple of times in the Dina story, and she's yalda zahar, that word is used again and again in the Dina story. And then there's the word tuma itself, and then yimul basar arlato, that the flesh of their foreskin shall be circumcised. There's even a kind of a three-day period in there. I really... I don't feel confident to make a case for it yet, but I really feel like these texts are in dialogue. And Jen has, has, has done, done me one better by suggesting that whatever has happened here, Leviticus, if there is a connection to the Dina story, and there must be on some level, it's at least the word was used there. Leviticus is reacting to a scenario in which the only way to contain a sense of bodily, um, uh, penetration and perhaps like a sense of, 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 of impurity, perhaps, that I've been impurified by this act. Now maybe we can use that word. The only way to deal with that is revenge, slaughter, punish, uh, punish other men, right? Men fighting with men about their national identities. But what about the woman? 
What did she need? What was her process? What about the person standing outside of the camp? What is their process? And here, we, you know, I am far from me to suggest what is, what is an ideal process for dealing with that kind of trauma, far from me, but it is at least significant, and Jen is beginning to name it for us here, that Leviticus sees a very different process. No, you don't just go killing people. You take Tuma and you have a, you sit, you are, you have your own space from other people, right? You make an offering. There's, there are rituals, the very rituals which they used as a lie back then are the rituals that are part of the purification process here, which takes time and deals with the needs of the individual. How well, hopefully we continue to improve and improve over, over the centuries. But Leviticus is, I think, making that move and suggesting that these forms of like feeling like, oh, my body has been violated by disease, by rape, by the various forms of, of the way we think about our bodies. And we've thought about them a lot more over the last couple of years, those conditions can be spiritually addressed in ritual form, not, not through like going out and, 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 you know, you know, going out and, 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 and slaughtering that that's some kind of older solution. So, okay. Uh, or, or maybe I should say, you know, that it's replacing one slaughtering for another, right? Cause this is still about like the sacrifices and you cut this and you cut like, there's ways of transposing the what they feel needs to take care of us is some bloodletting and some process of transformation, but now it's ritual instead of social. So thank you for that, Jen. Uh, thank you everybody for your tour today. Appreciate learning this massive and complicated uh, topic with you. Um, next week, I will be teaching, continuing to teach on this and we'll have a Passover focus. We'll look at next week's parsha, but look at the way that Passover is also dealing with some of these, some of these themes that we talked about today. Okay, love you all. Good Shabbos, have a good Shabbos. <laughs>